Hello, and welcome to the James Sheets Podcast. This podcast features the sermons and preaching messages of James Sheets, who pastored throughout West Virginia for many years. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a five-star review and share a memory of James with us. Let's listen as Pastor James Sheets begins his message. I'm going to tonight deal with the man Daniel. I'm going to entitle the message, The Man That Kept His Window Open. You probably recognize immediately the reason for that particular statement. We're going to go through the book of Daniel very hurriedly. Uh, Obviously, we'll miss a lot of things about this man that you might wish I had talked about, but I can't get it all in, in in 25 minutes or so. So there will be some, some gaps, but I want to hit some highlights in the life of this Old Testament character. He may not be the greatest man of the Old Testament in many, many ways, but he certainly was, was a great man. And it was to this man that the Lord revealed the events of the end of time, second coming of the Lord, and and all of those things that uh, nobody could understand until after the Lord came, and still some things we don't understand because they have not yet taken place. But as Brother Jesse stated, uh, I certainly agree that surely the Lord is coming soon. The escalation of all of these events in the world history is pointing to, surely, to a, a soon a rapture of the church, and we certainly need to be ready for it. But uh, that's another subject. The dealing with Daniel and his life, he is quite a colorful individual. Look in the very first chapter as we began. Some of this, some of the scripture I'll read, some of it I'll just tell you about. But in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. He certainly laid a a siege around uh, Jerusalem. And uh, he might have thought that he conquered Jerusalem himself, but verse 2 tells us that that was not the case. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part, I want you to pay attention to these verses, words now, because they'll come to play a little bit later. The Lord gave Jehoiakim into um, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar with part of the vessels of the house of God, some of the things that were used in the worship service, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. He brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. A somewhat insignificant statement it would appear on the surface that the spoils of the battle, they went into the house of God, picked out all of the the vessels and all the things he wanted and took them home and put them into the uh, pagan house of worship. All right, verse 3. And the king spake unto uh, Ashmanaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and the king's seed and of the princes. In other words, he had instructed his head eunuch to gather together out of Jerusalem 
out of Judah, some of the finest of all of the young men of, of the uh, territory. He was to find children of Israel, certain, and there was a description given, he was to have some of the king's seed, that is, some of the children of the king that were in his line were to be taken as well. Some scholars believe that Daniel was one of the uh, children of the king, not Jehoiakim, but back the line, that he was in the, the lineage of the king. We don't really have any exact way of proving that. But there were to be princes and children out of the king's uh, family and certain other children of Israel, all of these who had no blemish on them, they were well favored, they were intelligent and skillful, had all kinds of knowledge and were wise, and they understood science. I'm looking there in verse 4, if you wonder where I'm getting all that. And these people were to be brought back to Babylon and they were to be put into a program for three years in which they were to be well fed even from the food from the king's table. They were to be educated in all the ways of, of the, the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. And then in three years they were to be brought before the king that he might see the outcome of this three years of training. Notice in verse 6 that four of these are identified by name. One of them is Daniel. And then there are three others. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Those don't seem like familiar names. We're not used to using those names. But these were the Hebrew names of the children, four of the children of Israel. Verse 7 identifies the fact that Daniel was renamed and given a Babylonian name, Belteshazzar. We don't call him by that name. In verse 7 you see that. One of the others became Shadrach, another one Meshach, another one Be Abednego. So there are the, the um, Babylonian names of the three of them that we recognize, and Daniel has come through history by using his Hebrew name. We never think of him as uh, Belteshazzar. That was the name that he was given in comparison to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You've heard of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego all your life. You're, you're using uh, Babylonian names, not their Hebrew names at all, whenever you call them of those names. Verse 8. Daniel opposes this training program and the food that they were to be given. And verse 8 says that he purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. Now, most of the time it would appear, at least this is the way I feel like maybe sometimes I act and maybe you do as well, that we don't make up our mind ahead of time how we're going to serve God. We will do that when the episode arises. Some people don't decide if they're going to church until Sunday morning. 
And then it depends upon whether the kids have snotty noses, whether or not dinner's ready, how late you went to bed, whether or not uh, you women get your hair fixed just so-so, and on and on we go, and we men do our little things, of deciding then on certain circumstances as to whether we're going to go. That decision should have already been made years ago in our lives and never comes into question. It is automatically assumed, it should be, by every family, come Sunday morning, our place is in church, not somewhere else. And Sunday night, I suspect probably uh, that uh, some of you uh, sort of had a little family discussion this evening to decide whether or not you're going to come this evening. That happens at times. I hope that uh, maybe it doesn't. Uh, see, I can look at it that way. i got to be here. I don't have any choice in the matter. I mean, you know, that's, that's my job. I have to be present. If I didn't have to be present, I might be doing, going through some of those throws as well. Daniel made up his mind that he was going to be faithful to God ahead of time, and when the, uh, the situation developed that Nebuchadnezzar wanted him to do certain things that he felt would defile himself and his service of God, he already had his mind made up, the decision was made, no, I won't do that. We go out into society and we meet all kinds of potential conflicts in our lifestyle and in our faith. And sometimes we wait until the episode appears and then we try to decide, well, should I or shouldn't I engage in this, do this? The decision should have already been made so that we don't have to think about it. The answer is yes or the answer is already no. And we're not on uh, the, the point of making that decision. I, many times in talking to people about becoming Christian in their home, I, I point this out. You should become a Christian now while we are talking here in your living room or out hanging over the back fence or wherever it might be. The decision should be made then. And then you are purpose in your heart that I'm going to church tonight and when the invitation is given, the decision's already made, I'm going to get up and come forward. And it's not then a question, will I or won't I at that given time, because the decision is already made. Well, I think the decision should already be made in our lives as to how we're going to handle our lives in relationship to God. This was the kind of man that, that Daniel was, and he purposed in his heart that he was not going to eat this food and drink the wine that came off of the king's table. And so he said to the eunuch, how about giving us just vegetables to eat? That's what the word pulse in verse 12 means. And, and, and the eunuch said, no, look, I can't do that because I'm responsible for you. And if you guys come out of this training program looking dragged and haggard and not very good looking, it's going to be my head on the chopping block. And Daniel said, just try us for 10 days. Feed us of vegetables for 10 days and water. That's all we'll have, just the four of us, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel. And if we're not 
better off in that period of time, then, then uh, we'll, we'll go back and eat the king's meat. But if we are better looking and, and fairer than you would anticipate, then we'll continue with, with uh, what we have said. So the guy agreed to it, 10 days, what's that going to hurt out of three years? And the thing that he discovered was that they were in good shape. Now look over to verse 17. It's because of, chapter 1, because of their determination to serve God, that God honors this determination in verse 17. And as for these four children, God gave them knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Because these boys, they weren't much more than that, late teens, early twenties perhaps, these boys were so determined to serve God, God honored them by granting them far beyond the capabilities of anybody else, and the three of them got knowledge and, and learning and all kinds of wisdom, and Daniel he received an additional thing, the ability to have visions and interpret dreams. God gave that. When we honor God with our lives, God honors us in return and will give to us even beyond our wildest imaginations. Our responsibility is to be faithful. Do what we believe that God wants us to and the rest of it's up to God as to what he does. But we find in many places, and we don't have time to deal with them tonight, that God does indeed honor our faithfulness, and he certainly did in this case. Now, we've got to hurry. In the second chapter, Nebuchadnezzar has the dream. But he forgot what it was. It's like I have my dreams. It just aggravates me to death when I get up in the morning and I can't remember what my dream was. I suspect some of you had the same problem. And oh, I remembered that it was a good one, but I for life of me can't remember what it was. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and he couldn't remember what it was. He called all of his uh, scholars in, the astronomers and the wise people of his kingdom and and said to them, I had a dream, but I don't remember what it is. I want you to tell me what my dream was and interpret it for me. And they said, why, we can't do that. You tell us the dream, and we'll interpret it. Well, well. And they said, well, nobody can do that. Verse 11, except the God which dwell, who is dwelling is not with flesh. That's an important statement. The pagan people of that day thought that God did not dwell with his people. And we have learned that God does, in fact, dwell with us. The common unsaved person on the streets of our communities across this land still had the concept that God is way up there. But you and I know that God is way down here. As a matter of fact, he's more than just down here. We as his followers discover that he is actually inside us. 
And we don't have to go off searching for him somewhere because he is ever present. They thought that he was off somewhere. They say nobody except God who does not dwell with human flesh, with people, can ever do this. And it made Nebuchadnezzar angry and he was going to kill them all. And Daniel asked what was the hurry down in verse 15. And so he went in before the king and asked for some time. And he said, if you give me time, I'll tell you what the dream was and give you the interpretation. Now I want you to notice what Daniel did in verse 17. Daniel went home. He went to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he said, guys, we've got a problem. We're going to have to pray about it. And they had a prayer meeting. Those four men laid this episode before God in prayer. That night, in the middle of the night, Daniel had a vision. Verse 19. And the secret was revealed. Daniel. Before he got the vision as to what the dream was. They had a prayer meeting. If you and I want to accomplish something, and I think the ABW have well stated it in putting the uh, lists on the board, but which they have said they're going to daily pray. That's the way we accomplish something. We're going to have to spend time with God. Well, he comes back to Nebuchadnezzar to identify the dream. Goodness sakes, I'm about out of time, and he doesn't start. Verse 28. He tells Nebuchadnezzar that it is God in heaven that reveals the secret, not he himself. He says in verse 30 that this secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I might have any more than anybody else. I want you to notice Daniel says, I don't have the capability of this any more than any other living person. The reason that I know what your dream is and can interpret it to you is because of God in heaven. Now he goes on and explains the, the image and the vision that, that he had. And, and it was of a, a, a huge beast, an image that had... Uh, a head of gold and a breast and arms of silver and a belly and thighs of brass and, and uh, legs of iron and feet that were mixed with iron and clay. And that Daniel interpreted as being the future uh, kingdoms that were to reign. And we'll not, not deal with that. But we'll move on to another episode which we'll find over in... in uh, uh, chapter 3, in which Nebuchadnezzar builds a huge image of gold. And he instructs his people, all of his counselors and judges and sheriffs and everybody to order it throughout the entire kingdom that when the music sounds, that everybody is to fall down and worship this image that he's built. And so they do that. Except there were three guys that didn't do it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not bow. 
When some of his people come back to King Nebuchadnezzar and said, didn't you make a decree that everybody has to fall down before this image? And if they don't, we're going to throw you into the fiery furnace. The king said, yes, I made such a decree. Well, there are three people in your kingdom that we know about that did not fall down before the image. And I've always wondered where Daniel was in this and where you don't have anything like that here. This made the king very angry. And then he finds out that it's three of his favorite people. So he comes in the 15th verse and says to them, Now look, you guys didn't do it the first time. I'm going to give you a second chance. This time, if you hear the music and fall down before the image, then you won't be thrown into the furnace. I want you to notice what these guys responded. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king of Nebuchadnezzar, We are not careful, that is, we are not being flippant about our answer. We are very concerned about what we're going to say, and we say it with caution, but we say it sincerely. Verse 17, If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand. Now, notice the statement. If it is so, if our God, our God is able to deliver us. And there's where we get the song, he is able to deliver me. If our, our God is able, he can take us out of that furnace. Verse 15, but if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. I want you to notice how emphatic they make the statement. They say two things. Number one, we know God can deliver us. Secondly, but if he does not deliver us, we're still not going to worship that golden image. You know, we have always said that there are certain things that we have to do. We can't avoid doing. And the answer comes back, must you do? Had we been in this situation, and the king had said, bow down before the image on penalty of death, would we have bowed down? Or would we have said, king, our God is able to deliver us, but if he doesn't, nevertheless, we're not going to worship that golden image. That's putting your faith on the line. That's taking God in his word. That's what God wants. And it made the king full of fury, verse 19 says, and he commanded that these three boys be cast into a burning, fiery furnace, completely clothed, their normal clothes on, their coats, their hats, all the other garments that they had on in verse 21, and they were thrown into the furnace, and the furnace was so hot that the men who threw them in died from the heat of it. Verse 22 tells us that. Look at verse 23. 
These three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound, they were tied, into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. And then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished, and rose up in haste, and spake, and said to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? There's something wrong here. And they answered and said, True, O king. He said, Well, lo, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire. They have no hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Let me tell you, I believe Jesus himself was in the furnace. In a furnace so hot that it killed people near it. And yet, those three men stood firm on their faith and went what was supposed to be to their death. And Nebuchadnezzar is amazed when he looks in. And they're loose. They're not bound. And there's a fourth man. I want you to use this to encourage when you are at the worst point in your life, there is nothing left worth living for. You have reached the bottom. If you are faithful and feel like you're standing in the pit of a furnace, if you're faithful to God, there will be a man beside you. Like the Son of God. Here's the illustration. Perfect. He pulls those men out of the furnace, makes a decree that everybody will recognize the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You've got to go on. Chapter 5. Nebuchadnezzar died, and his son Belshazzar becomes king. Belshazzar, in his kingdom, decides that he's going to have a great feast for all of the people of Babylon. A time of eats, drink, and merrymaking. His wives and concubines and all of his princes and all of the people of the kingdom gathered together. And they began a drunken brawl. And what does he do but takes the things out of storage that Nebuchadnezzar had brought out of the temple in Jerusalem and uses them as drinking vessels. And he's drinking wine and whatever else out of these vessels. And all of a sudden, when he takes a sip, he looks up on the wall, and there's nothing but the hand of a man up there, about wrist high. That's all. Writing. I mean, he's drunk. There goes the hand writing. And it scares Nebuchadnezzar nearly to death. 
As a matter of fact, the scripture says in the sixth verse that his knees smote against each other and his joints were loose. I mean, he was petrified. And he asked all of his wise men, what, what is that? What does that mean? What are those words? And strangely, nobody understood the writing. Nobody could interpret it, let alone explain how there was a hand up there writing. Nebuchadnezzar's getting a little sober by now. <coughs> they remember that there is a man named Daniel who had interpreted dreams for Nebuchadnezzar. So Daniel brought in. If we had time, we could deal with the sermon that Daniel preaches, but Daniel's pretty firm. And he reminds Belshazzar that he had not humbled himself, even though he should have known to, based upon the experience of his father. But he says to Belshazzar, I will interpret what's up there. Verse 25, he said, this is the writing that was written. Mene, Mene, Ikel, Euphorus. Anybody know what those words mean? Nobody in the room? Daniel says, you are weighed in the balances. You're found wanting. Look at it. Verse 26 and 7. This is the interpretation. Meaning, God has numbered thy kingdom and finished Thou art weighed in the balances and are found wanting. Pharis, which is a short for you, Pharis. Thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Three statements. But the emphasis that we want to make tonight is weighed in the balances. How do we weigh out God's expectations? This old king was weighed in the balances. His kingdom is about over. Outside the walls of the city was the army, a combined army of the Medes and the Persians who had laid siege to that city. But Obelshazzar is not afraid because he has tremendous defenses set up. And inside he's gone through this drunken brawl. During the night, well, let me say this first. The river ran through the city, and, and there was huge iron gates sunk down into the water as where the river ran through the city on each side. But during the night, the Medes and the Persian army diverted that river so that it ran around the city instead of through it. And after the water was diverted, they went down in the riverbed, and they went through under the gates, and conquered that kingdom with very little fighting because everybody inside was drunk. And the Medes and Persians became the rulers of the kingdom. And a Persian by the name of Darius, chapter 6, becomes king. 
I'm sorry, Darius is a Mede. I knew I was wrong and couldn't think what I'd said wrong. Darius, a Mede, took over the kingdom. Now, in verse chapter 6, it pleased Darius so much to see the splendor and the ability of certain people that within his kingdom, one being Daniel, that he elevated Daniel to a high position. This infuriated the underlings. They weren't going to answer to a guy who had been a slave and had been elevated to, to a position of responsibility. And so in verse, in verse 4 of chapter 6, they got themselves together and said, we're going to have to figure out something to do about this Daniel. They sought an occasion against him. But the problem was, in the latter portion of verse 4, they couldn't find anything wrong with the man. They couldn't go to, uh, to Darius and say, hey, this guy Daniel ought to be put in jail. For this, this, there was nothing they could, they could charge you with. And they finally said, unless we find something against him pertaining to his religion, we're not going to succeed in this matter. Let me ask you this. How many of us would be able to withstand that kind of scrutiny? The only thing anybody can find wrong with us has to do with our religion. If we can trump up something. I mean, he is so righteous and so determined and so right and so religious. We're going to have to do something to trump up charges with his religion. And so they got the king to issue a decree that everybody's going to have to bow down and worship the king. And the penalty was thrown into the lion's den, verse 10. Down the latter portion of it. But let's, well, let's read all verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house, and his windows being opened in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled down upon his knees, Three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before God as he did before. He never changed his pattern of worship simply because there was a governmental decree that says you no longer worship. All right. Then these men assembled and found they found Daniel praying. Wouldn't it be great if the only thing that they could find wrong with you and me by watching our lives and putting us under a microscope is that, hey, he prays. I wonder how many of us could be charged with that charge. We pray. Are we known as people of prayer? If somebody really watched you 24 hours a day and it was against the law to pray, would you go to jail? This was Daniel's situation. Didn't you sign a decree, O king, that anybody who didn't bow down before uh, your, you and worship you is going to be thrown into the lion's den. Yes, that's what I said. Well, there is a guy named Daniel who's doing that very thing. And verse 14, the king was very displeased with himself. He'd been tricked. But when the law was written, the law had to be upheld. And he refused uh, to, uh, he could not, he could not change it. And so they cast him into the lion's den. And I want you to notice in verse 16, what old king Darius says to Daniel Thy God, whom thou servest continually, he will deliver thee. Now, Darius was not a godly man. He didn't worship Jehovah. But there was a statement that he made that certainly is absolutely true. The God that we serve is able to deliver us. And that's where we get, he is able to deliver thee. 
He's able. He will do it. He will deliver us. And if not, it should make no difference to us. We'll be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're going to do it anyway. And if it means our death, then we will die. Well, into the lion's den he goes, and the rock goes on top, and the old king spends a whole night sleepless, and he's worried about Daniel. And the first 20, he comes out the next morning, and he's very sheepishly uh, sort of calling down into the lion's den underneath that rock. And, and to Daniel, he said, is, verse 20, is thy God, whom thou servest continually, able to deliver thee? Uh, he said it. Now then, he's beginning to doubt. Did he, did he really do it? And you can just almost hear Daniel uh, in verse 22 saying, My God has sent his angel and has shut the lion's mouth. They have not hurt me. Daniel spent a night down there with a whole bunch of hungry lions and not a one of them touched him. Why? Because God intervened. Well, Daniel had been faithful. And Darius proclaimed that Daniel's God is the living God. Took him out of there and uh, elevated him even further in the kingdom. One other thing, and I'll say it real quickly. One of the most famous things about Daniel is his prophecy that's handled in chapter 9. And it's a tremendous lesson in itself, and it's a prophecy. You ought to mark it, you ought to know it, you know where it is because it fits so well into the study in Revelation. When the prophecy is given here and the vision he had of 70 weeks that are to be determined upon the people of Israel, in verse 24 through the rest of that chapter, we'll deal with that sometime. We won't do it tonight, but that's one of the more famous passages of Scripture in all the Bible. You may not have it memorized, but you ought to know where it is and be able to find it. It's the prophecy dealing with, with the end of time and fits well into that which takes place in Revelation. Great man who was determined that he would serve God regardless of the consequences. And if there is anybody that we can look to who would, in the scripture, who stuck to his guns and refused to bow the knee to images and to the king, and continued to open his window and pray to God as he always had done to give us a demonstration of a man who was faithful to what he determined, predetermined, he was going to do. Who had to be there. We need to predetermine our position and then stick to it. That's what I think Daniel teaches us. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you like what you hear, hit the subscribe button. You'll receive automatic notifications and downloads when a new message is added to the podcast. Also, please leave a five-star review and take the opportunity to share stories, memories, and appreciation for James Sheets and how God used him to impact your life. If you'd like to know why and how this podcast got started, check out our first episode. Lastly, if you want to donate to help offset the cost of operating this podcast, you'll find a link to our PayPal account in the podcast description and email us at james.com sheets.podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and remember to trust in God for today and for all of your tomorrows.